Christians don't always agree on everything. And that's why we have so many different denominations. As we look at the Bible, we read the same Bible, but sometimes as we interpret the scriptures, we come to different conclusions. And I respect that and understand that. And I appreciate those Christians that, that are part of different denominations. Um, we, all, we need all in order to do the Lord's work. But today, I want to try to address a difficult disagreement among various Christian traditions. In, in the short amount of time that I have to speak on the subject, I don't have time to fully address every part of it, but I will do my best to uh, address it in a way that is understandable and hopefully uh, helps you to understand the issue a little bit better. The issue is, can women preach and pastor, be pastor of a church? Methodist Christians say yes. All, going all the way back to John Wesley, John Wesley was one of the first to allow that. And he felt that, he saw that women, there was a, a great need for people to preach the word of God and to lead churches and there just weren't enough ministers to go around. And women began to step up and fill the role. And it, initially, he was hesitant to accept that. But as he saw their great ability, he began to see that this was God's will. And um, so we're going to talk about that today. Not all denominations accept that. And I respect those denominations that, that, that don't allow women to preach. And here's why. They choose not to allow women to preach because they believe that the scripture instructs them not to. And I believe that Christians are supposed to base their beliefs off of what scripture says. And sometimes what scripture says uh, it is counter to what culture says. And so I would rather a church base their beliefs and practices on what scripture says than on what culture is pressuring them to do. Does that make sense? As for me and for the Methodist Church, we base the fact that women can preach and lead pastor church on Scripture, not on cultural pressure. But I'm going to try to explain why that is today. We believe that the Bible is the Word of God that contains everything necessary and sufficient for our salvation. And the Bible is the foundation of all Christian beliefs and practices. If you believe that, say amen. So if we're going to learn if women can preach and be the pastor and lead a church, then we have to start with the scripture. But you can't just read the Bible without thinking about it critically and understanding it. Methodists try to think and read the Bible with with understanding historical context. We understand that the Bible is an ancient document that you can't just always read straightforwardly, or you can't just read it like you might read a newspaper or a modern school textbook. Methodists understand that there are that this is a very ancient document dealing with situations in the ancient world, and also understanding that there are different genres of literature in the Bible that you have to read them and analyze them and understand what God is trying to say to us today. We are interpreting what we read in Scripture so many times. Paul's letters in the New Testament 
are an excellent source of critical information for Christians about how to live. However, we always read them knowing that they are letters. Letters are written to people. And usually, maybe someone will respond back. Okay, maybe we don't write letters as much anymore, but we write emails, right? Same sort of thing. You send an email, and then you receive an email back, right? It's a two-way conversation. But the letters that we read in the Bible are just one half of the conversation. We aren't hearing the whole story. We're only hearing half of the conversation, and that can be very tricky. Do you remember... A few years ago, State Farm had a commercial about Jake from State Farm. great commercial and so funny, but also a great illustration for when you hear half of the conversation, you can get yourself in real trouble, can't you? You don't hear the whole story. Well, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes his letters to specific communities, often to address specific problems. But we only hear what Paul is saying, not necessarily what the community is saying. And we have to use our minds or maybe even look into historical records of the day to try to figure out what is going on in the church to whom he is writing to get the full story about what Paul is teaching and why. The Roman world of the, of the first century was very different from our own. The Romans had conquered large swaths of territory that included cities over a vast area. All these different cities had their own cultures, traditions, and religions. And these all made Christian preaching and teaching and living quite difficult. How you taught and preached and lived in Jerusalem might be quite different from how you would preach and teach in Galatia. One was a Jewish territory. One was a Gentile pagan territory. Very different. And so these Christians were spreading out across all of these vast territories trying to figure out how to live and teach in these areas. There's a very intriguing document called Ephesiaca. It was written around 50 AD by a man named Xenophon of Ephesus. It's fascinating because it was written around the same time the Apostle Paul was ministering to the Ephesians as recorded in our Bibles. In the, in the ancient document, Xenophon describes the great temple of Artemis of the Ephesians. Artemis was the goddess of, Ephes of Ephesus. According to Acts chapter 19, verse 25, the Ephesians believed the statue of Artemis fell down from heaven. Ephesus was the religious center for the worship of Artemis. People came from all over the world to worship Artemis in the Artemisium, the temple there in Ephesus. 
And of course, this was a this was a very big religious center, but it was also great for business. I mean, think about it. If, you, if your town is the home of the temple of Artemis and thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people are coming from all over the world to your city to worship, it's also a great business of tourism, right? And the, one of the biggest parts of the economy in Ephesus was money that was made on selling jewelry and religious trinkets and things to all of those people that were coming to worship in Ephesus. And this guy, Xenophon, describes that temple of Artemis. He said that it was very different from most of the other male-dominated religions in the ancient world. Artemis was a female goddess, and her temple was staffed by female priestesses. The priestesses were at the top of the social order of Ephesus. They tended to be very wealthy. They tended to be very well-educated, at least according to the standards of Ephesus, with the worldview of the Artemisian religion. They adorned themselves with elaborate and expensive clothing and jewelry that showcased their sexuality and their femininity. They wore their hair uncovered and braided in these special braids that indicated their wealth and their beauty and their devotion to God. If you saw one of these women walking down the streets of Ephesus, you could immediately know that she was a priestess because of the way she was dressed and the way she had her hair done up in this elaborate hairstyle. Contrary to the biblical story of Genesis, the Artemisian religion taught that the goddess Artem- Artemis created humanity. Not the God of Israel. Artemis was the one that did it. That's what they taught. And guess who Artemis created first? The woman. And from the woman, then created man. Women were created first. Then man came from the woman. It was the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches in Genesis, where it tells us that God created man from the dust of the earth. And then Adam looked at all of the creatures on earth to try to find someone that was a suitable partner for him and couldn't find anyone. And so God caused Adam to fall asleep. And God took a rib from the side of Adam and created woman who was bone of Adam's bone and flesh of his flesh. And Adam said, finally, I have a partner that is perfectly suitable for me. That's what the Bible teaches. But Artemis says no and turns it completely around. Furthermore, the Artemisian religion taught women, you better worship Artemis. You better honor Artemis or you will die in childbirth. Well, in the ancient world, I mean today, really, honestly, giving birth is is very painful, very scary, and it's still dangerous. But in the first century, it was extremely painful and extremely dangerous. So many people died. And the Artemisian religion said, you better honor the goddess of women the creator of humanity, 
Because if you don't, you will die when you go to give birth to a child. Now, this was a fanatical religion. When Paul and some of the early Christian missionaries tried to preach about Jesus in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, some of the local businesses who made money off of the Artemisian temple gathered a mob together, and they said, brothers, if we let these Christians keep preaching about Jesus, they're trying to to destroy the temple of Artemis, and with it, they will destroy our business. So they gathered a mob together, and they started a riot to oppose the Christians. They took over the city, and Acts chapter 19 says, they shouted, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they shouted it for two hours. Until finally the authorities got things back under control, and they said, friends, they're not, you know, we got to disband this riot Or we're going to be in danger of having the Roman authorities come in and put it down violently. You almost get this picture, you know, of some of the riots that we've seen in our country where things get out of control and people are burning down businesses and all kinds of crazy stuff is happening. And they, you know, this is what was happening. And this was sometime around 53 to 55 A.D., Right around the same time that guy, Xenophon, wrote the Ephesiaca about the Artemisian religious practices. Now, knowing that background, listen to part of Paul's letter to Timothy, who was leading a church. Where do you think he was leading a church? Ephesus. Here's what he writes. I want the women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothing. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. Do you see what Paul is saying to the women and the leaders of the Ephesian church? He is directly addressing what these Artemisian priestesses would be doing. And then going on, it says, Women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. For God made Adam first, and afterward he made Eve And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived, and sin sin was the result. You see what he's saying here? He is directly addressing the Artemisian religion. He's saying, these Artemisians are teaching this wrong. This is the way it really goes. And then he says in verse 15, But women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. This is a difficult passage. Again, difficult especially because we're only hearing one side of the conversation. This passage is one of the main passages that some Christian traditions use to say that women cannot preach or be pastors of a church. Methodists disagree. We ordain women, and here is why. We believe Paul is writing to Timothy, advising on the best way to pastor a church in Ephesus. 
Ephesus, the home base of the Artemisian temple, where, driven, where women dressed in expensive, elaborate clothing and lord their priestly position over men. No doubt many of the women of Ephesus were highly educated and wealthy, but their status and their wealth and their educational background was a direct contradiction of biblical Christianity. And it was tempting for some of these women to come to the church and feel that they could immediately step into positions of authority in the church. I mean, some of them may have formerly been priestesses of Artemis, or they had been aspiring to be priestesses of Artemis. Why shouldn't they be able to immediately switch from being a priestess of Artemis to a priestess of the Christian God? Because they weren't ready. They had to die to their former way of living or their former aspirations, and they had to learn a new way of living. They had to give up that old and come to Christ in the new. Knowing the context of the, Artem- of the Ephesian women makes a difference. Paul isn't saying to all women everywhere at all times that they shouldn't wear jewelry or fix their hair or wear pretty dresses or clothing. The context of the scripture helps the last statement of the passage make even more perfect sense. Verse 15, where it says, women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. Artemis told women, you better honor me or you will die in childbirth. Paul says, you will be saved if you follow Jesus. Artemis cannot hurt you. That was a big deal for, the, for a lot of women in that city to believe that. And Paul was writing to say to the Ephesian church, the Ephesian church should not be... Paul was writing to say that women of the Ephesian church should not be in charge at that time. Timing was not right. It wasn't a good idea in that moment. But Paul did not intend to make a general statement for the whole church around the whole world at all times. We know that because there are other places where Paul explicitly affirms women in church leadership. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul affirms that women can pray and prophesy in public at church. Prophecy is considered one of the most important roles of church leaders. In the Old Testament, a prophet was considered more important than the king. That seems backwards to us because we think the king is the guy that's at the top. But in the Old Testament, Israel, that's not the case. Who was it that chose or who was it that affirmed Saul as king? It was the prophet Samuel. God said to the prophet, go anoint Samuel. And when Samuel anointed Saul, Saul was the king. And when Saul was continually disobeying God... Who took him out of the position? The prophet Samuel. 
And then he anointed who? To take his place? David. And when King David cheated on his wife with Bathsheba, who called him on it? Nathan, the prophet. He came to David and he said, what you have done is wrong. And here's what God says about it. The prophet was a very important, important role. And in Corinthians, Paul says women can pray and prophesy. He says when they do it, here's how they should do it. And he gives instructions on it. Furthermore, Paul affirms many women who led churches. In the 16th chapter of Romans, you read a bunch of different names. By the way, there are tons and tons of references to women leading churches. I don't have time, and you don't want to be here all day, so I'm just going to show you three from the 16th chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 16, verse 1, Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a deacon in the church of Centria. Deacons are counterparts to the preachers and pastors of the church. In the United Methodist denomination, you, you are either ordained as a deacon or you are ordained as a elder or a preacher. They are equal status. And Phoebe was a female who was a deacon, just like the famous Stephen was a deacon in the book of Acts. Stephen, who became the first martyr. And in the same chapter, verse 3, Paul writes, Give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in the ministry of Christ Jesus. Priscilla and Aquila were pastors. We're not sure. Maybe a husband and wife. Probably husband and wife. Paul always mentions them together. Priscilla and Aquila, who pastored a church in their home. There is another famous guy in Scripture named Apollos. He's a great one of the great early leaders of the church. Well, when Apollos first started preaching, he didn't have the whole story. He was, he was preaching for Christ, but his doctrine was a little bit off. And Priscilla and Aquila sort of pulled him aside and said, hey, we appreciate what you're doing, but you're a little bit off. And they corrected his doctrines, what Acts tells us. And it was Priscilla and Aquila that were doing it, instructing him. Priscilla and Aquila. Now, some people say, well, it was a husband and wife team. So, but remember, Paul lived in a male-dominated culture. He was under no obligation whatsoever. As a matter of fact, convention would have that he wouldn't mention the wife. He would just mention the man. But Paul, every time he mentions it, he says Priscilla and Aquila. He makes a point to call her name. And he always puts her name first. Hmm. The fact that Paul mentions them shows that he considers them to be equals and he calls them his co-workers and they were leading a church. In the same chapter, verse 7, Paul writes, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jew, who were in prison with me. They are highly respected among the apostles and became followers of Christ before I did. The church from the beginning always translated that to mean 
that Junia was an apostle. You can read it and you could say, well, it sounds like he's saying that they were respected by the apostles, but the Greek was always translated to mean she was among the apostles. In other words, she was one of the apostles. And Paul says she became follower before Paul did. She preceded Paul. Junia is a female name. It is the Latinized version of the word or the name Joanna. I wish Joanna Scruggs was here today because uh, you say, well, you, you were named after an apostle, a female apostle in the New Testament. Joanna is mentioned as one of the women who came to the tomb with the Marys to see Jesus when he rose from the grave. We're not 100% sure if it's the same person, but the early church thought it was. Luke 24, when Joanna comes to see Jesus rising from the grave. The early church up to 1000 AD accepted that Junia was a female apostle who had been with Jesus. The early definition of an apostle from the New Testament, you were an apostle if you had physically seen Jesus before he was crucified. And they accepted that Junia was an apostle up to 1000 AD. Now, after 1000 AD, a funny thing happens in the Roman Catholic Church. They start trying to say that Junia wasn't a woman, she was a man. Why did they do that? Because the Roman Catholic Church no longer at that point allowed women to lead churches. (laughs) And they wanted to redefine scripture so that it fit their teaching. Their corrupt teaching. Now, some people will say, well, all of this is scant evidence. I mean, you can't really base all of this off of that, can you? And I would agree. No, these are tantalizing clues, but they are not in, you know, undeniable proof. We have to go further for that. Paul is the one that's writing all of this stuff. What, does, what was Paul's worldview? Well, we've talked about this before in Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 and 29. He wrote, speaking of his theology, the foundation of everything he believes and teaches, he says, there is no Jew or Gentile, there is no slave or free, there is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. You are his heirs. That's an interesting word, that one little word, heir. According to the Old Testament, according to the Jewish religion, women cannot be heirs. Women do not inherit things. It is always passed down to sons. But Paul says here, you are heirs. You're not heirs of a, you know, inheritance, your family inheritance. You are inheriting the kingdom of God. And it doesn't matter if you're male or if you're female. You inherit it. And if you can inherit the kingdom of heaven, I think Paul doesn't have a problem with women leading a church. And what was Jesus' worldview? Jesus 
accepted women as equal throughout his ministry. I learned something that I'd not learned before preparing for this sermon. I love this too. It makes so much sense. You know the story of Mary and Martha. Didn't that story always bug you? Okay, let me just kind of off the top of my head recount this for you. Mary and Martha and the disciples are all there at Lazarus' home, and Jesus is teaching, and Martha's running around fixing the food and preparing and serving the men as they listen to Jesus' teaching. And then Mary is sitting there listening too. And Martha gets upset. Jesus, don't you see Mary sitting there? Why don't you tell her to get up and help me? Why did, now I never thought about this before. This is me being a man. Why didn't Martha say, Jesus, would you tell Peter to get up and help me serve the food? Well, you know why she didn't say that, right? Same reason wouldn't say it today, right? We have these social customs. Martha immediately thought, Mary shouldn't be sitting here at Bible study. She should be helping me fix the food. Because women fix the food and men do the Bible study, right? What did Jesus say? He said, Mary. She said, Martha, you're worried about all these things. But Mary has chosen the more important thing. He said to her, just because she's a woman doesn't mean she has to be fixing the sandwiches. She gets to do what the men get to do. That's what she gets to do. Martha could have done it too. But Martha chose a different path. Mary chose to be like the men, and Jesus said, absolutely. Because you know why? Paul's going to tell you this on down the road. In the kingdom of heaven, there is no Jew or Gentile, there is no slave or free, and there is no male and female. We're all on equal footing before the cross. He lived it, and he helped. He said the kingdom of heaven is coming. It is right here, and it is at hand. God did not create men to rule the world and women to be subservient. That was not God's original plan. People say, yeah, but, but the Bible says, the Bible says, yes, it does say in the third chapter. In the first chapter, they were created equal. And in the third chapter, they chose to sin. And the result of the fall was a curse. Because people sinned, the world became corrupt, and the world and the people in it are cursed by sin. Genesis 3.16 says, Women will desire to control their husbands, but they will rule over them. And ever since, we have seen this curse in action. Men throughout the ages have tried to subjugate women. On the other hand, women have tried to break free. And in breaking free, they have oftentimes gone too far the opposite direction. Perhaps like the, the women in the temple of Artemis. Have you not seen when someone's, when a, someone's female liberation has gone so far as now, it's not that men and women are equal, it is that women are better and, women, and men are scum. Whenever we say men are better and women are, are lower, or when we say women are better and men are lower, anytime we say that, we are wrong. But guess what? Jesus came to break the curse. 
That's the key. What does that mean? Well, it means a lot of things. But one way we live out the truth of this is by recognizing that women can have equal leadership responsibilities in the church and in the workplace and in the government. In the Methodist church, women can be pastors of the church. We believe that this is based upon the word of God. We aren't led to this by the whims of changing societal conditions or conventions. Rather, we are led by the word of God to lead our culture to understand this because the eternal word of God says so. And a new reality has been brought about by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The curse is broken. And the kingdom of God and its realities are breaking into our broken world to save us. Therefore, we don't try to continue to hold to and enforce the curse. We try to bring the kingdom of God. It's time to close. What curse needs to be broken in your life? Curse that was brought about by sin, a curse that, whether it was your sin or sin from ages and ages ago. We live in a broken world and we are broken people, but we don't have to stay broken because Jesus came to make us new so that his kingdom comes His will is done on earth and in our lives as it is in heaven. What curse needs to be broken in your life today? I invite you to take that to Jesus as we close. He is the one who can set you free.